Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblina Chakraborty. And today we are going to be talking about the poet and playwright Christopher Marlowe. And Marlowe is just about the double of William Shakespeare. They were born the same year, only a few months apart. They're both sons of kind of, you know, decent earning tradesmen. And they showed remarkable promise as boys, read voraciously, and then moved to London and started very successful careers in the theater. But their paths diverge. (laughs) While Shakespeare went on to great fame and security, he ended up retiring in his hometown in his late 40s. Marlowe died with a stab wound to the eye at age 29. Sounds like a really bad way to go. Definitely. And we don't even know that entirely for sure, that he died with this stab wound to the eye. But it's what we think. Everything about Marlowe is really, really sketchy. Even his last name, it's variously Marlowe, Marl, Marley, Morley, Marlin, Marlin, and Marling. How does that work? So, I mean, the Elizabethans are notoriously bad spellers, but come on. That's a lot of <laughs> name variations. So, if we're going to assume it's one guy, though, Christopher Marlowe, what do we know about him? Well, he was the son of a shoemaker, as we mentioned, kind of a tradesman, low beginning, lowish beginning. He was born in Canterbury and baptized around February 26, 1564. Yeah, so we can assume he was probably born a few days before that. When he was in his early teens, he entered King School Canterbury on tuition. So he must have shown some kind of promise as a young boy to earn this scholarship. But being a scholarship student is not an easy job at all. I mean, it's an enormous privilege for him, but it's also a lot of work. Long days. Yeah. He apparently had like 18 hour work days. <laughs> so getting up at the crack of dawn and working until late at night, mostly doing Greek and Latin memorizations, translations. So not anything. Not exactly a super party. exciting. And also, you know, he had to show that he was humble and that he was appreciative of this. Um, gift he was receiving, wear dark wool clothes, keep his hair cut short. Um, yeah, yes, not, I mean, it, it's, it's lucky for him, I guess, but not super fun sounding. Yeah, but a year after that, he was off to Cambridge in Corpus Christi College, where he earned his BA in 1584. Up until that point, the paper trail, as we mentioned, shows pretty promising youth for, for Marlowe. Yeah, it looks then- like things might might go pretty good for this kid. Yeah, he's been studying well, probably been studying a little bit of the Bible, some Reformation theology, philosophy, history. But then there's a bit of a blip. Yeah, and that comes in in 1587. And Marlowe is just about to earn his master's degree. And suddenly the school hesitates about granting it to him. Um, The problem is he's been absent, like, He's been absent quite a bit, way more than your average student should be. And they don't know what he's been up to, what he's been doing. Then the officials hear from the Privy Council, which the Privy Council is Queen Elizabeth's own body of advisors. So that's a pretty serious call to make. (laughs) 
That's very official. And and they pretty much encourage the school to grant him a degree. Yeah. So lucky guy. They say that his absences are totally excusable. In fact, they were due to his, quote, working on matters touching the benefit of his country, Hmm. which I don't know. What is this college student doing for his country? That's so secret. Spying. Possibly spying. And that's what most historians think. It's not well documented for obvious reasons. And, of course, a lot from the Elizabethan era isn't well documented in the first place. But, obviously, spy documents are going to (laughs) be not easy to get your hands on. I would hope so. I would hope that those spy documents are well, well hidden. Yeah. But from what we know or what we can guess, it seems like Marlowe was recruited while he was still a student by Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walshingham. And you might remember that name. It popped up in the Mary Stewart episode. And if you haven't listened to those, they're from about a year ago. I would definitely recommend maybe after this one going back, going over them. They'll explain a lot about the... Um, Catholic Protestant trouble going on at the time and Elizabeth's deep fear of plots that really runs through this whole episode. So what we think happened at that time is that he was sent to Ream, where he would have spied on English Catholic expats. Yeah, Li- and he'd be listening for trouble, essentially. Yeah, threats, possible invasions, that sort of thing. Yeah, and we should note, too, this is only two years after the Babington plot was uncovered. And again, that pops up in one of those Mary Stewart episodes. But it was the plot to restore her to the throne. She's in prison. She's the Catholic queen. And Catholics kind of held her as as their hope to supplant Elizabeth. And it's also the plot that led to... Elizabeth having to execute her finally in February 1587. So Elizabeth is in a high state of paranoia. Yeah, she has a lot to be worried about. Justifiably. Definitely. But Marlowe, he's not worried at all. He's not. He's a little troublemaker. Yeah. After graduating, he moved to London, where his degree should have put him on a path to becoming a gentleman, which would have been a step up from his beginnings, his tradesman father beginnings. But... He's successful in his own right. Yeah, he is successful. He's definitely not on the path to becoming a gentleman, though. He's working in the theater, and his writing, his playwriting, does set new standards. He writes Tamburlaine the Great, which was in two parts, performed in 1587, and it is just a huge hit. C.S. Lewis later called it the story of Giant the Jack Killer, so that gives you a good idea of... um, Kind of the gist of the plot, if you've never read it or seen it yourself. But it's a really violent and passionate play. And it goes to print only a couple years after its debut, which was a really good sign of how popular something was. Because at this point, playwrights didn't publish their work right away. They were owned by the company. And the company kind of kept them close. Because if the other company got a hold of all their plays, then they could stage them and not have to pay for it. Um, it was only if the public absolutely demanded to have a copy of the play that it would be published. So this was a big deal. Definitely. It was a big deal. And I think it was the only thing published during Marlowe's lifetime. So this also had an impression on other writers at the time as well. The history format clearly influenced Shakespeare, who at this point was making his living as a player, not a playwright. Shortly after that, he started his own history project, the Henry VI Plays, 
which are so like the work of Marlowe that scholars once thought they were some kind of joint venture together. Yeah, and it was kind of a one-up in the way, too. It was it was a history play, but it was going to be an English history play, which was going to require a lot of delicacy to make sure, you know, he didn't say anything he shouldn't say. Um, but Marlowe, we, we mentioned he was definitely not on the path to becoming a gentleman, and this is why he's living unconventionally, to say the least. He supposedly would make heretical comments he was possibly even into the occult. He's supposed to have said that Jesus's mother was, quote, dishonest, uh, plus a whole lot of other stuff that would get you killed pretty quickly at the time. He would. Yep. He was also said to be homosexual. He one of the things he was supposed to have said was that all they that love not tobacco and boys are fools. And probably most famously, he's known for his brawling. He's even involved in the death of a man. There's this fight with an innkeeper's son, William Bradley, and Marlowe's friend Thomas Watson, who is another member of this poet bad boy set, intervenes. At the end of it all, Bradley, the innkeeper's son, ends up with Watson's sword stuck six inches deep in his chest. And both Marlowe and Watson were arrested on suspicion of murder, obviously, and they end up being released because of, uh, you know, it seems like it's self-defense. But this is the kind of trouble that Marlowe gets into. That's some serious trouble. And he's, it's interesting that you mentioned his friends because he was involved in kind of a crowd, a group of men called the University Wits. That's what they called themselves. And they were bound by their allegiances to Cambridge and Oxford, but it didn't really matter if they were rich or poor. They were just a group, a yeah, kind of a they clique. Were, they were an interesting group. Some of them would be from very high families, and others would be like Marlowe himself, you know, a tradesman's son who had gotten noticed for his intelligence and worked his way up. Um, but they really... <laughs> They really insisted on that university education to be a member of their group. And they would have, they would have considered Shakespeare lacking because of his lack of university education. Yeah, he would have seemed like kind of a country boy to them in a way. Definitely. Um, but some of these university wits are, are scary guys. I mean, Watson was one of them, as we mentioned. Um, yet you, you think maybe thugs and poets don't go hand in hand, but in this case. Here they did. Yeah, they did. And they still managed to write a lot of very learned material. And Marlowe, especially in his six year career, he followed up his first big hit with The Jew of Malta, Dr. Faustus. The Massacre at Paris and Edward II. Which was likely a response to Shakespeare's success with Henry VI. Yeah, and if you remember Edward II, we actually did a podcast on him. It was Who is the Greatest Traitor? So another... Um, another one to check another out. Another one to check out. Again. Um, and he also wrote poetry, too. His unfinished poem, Hero and Leander, uh, was called The Finest Elizabethan Poem After Those of Edmund Spencer. So, I mean, he's a... He's a talented writer, despite all that's going on. I, I just want to make that point before we <laughs> move on to the. the yeah, we don't want to just side. point out his thug qualities. We also <laughs> want to point out his poetry, his prowess in the poetry realm. Yeah, but life starts to catch up with him. Yep, he's arrested in Flushing. Supposedly they're on business, I guess. One would think, but who knows? An assumption. He's arrested there for forgery and for being pro-Catholic. 
And then more seriously, in 1593, somebody nails up this xenophobic placard on the Dutch church in London. And as we mentioned, there's a lot of paranoia going on. There's a lot of fears of Catholic plots, but also uh, radical Puritans. So anything that's trying to stir up religious unrest is going to be frowned upon by the authorities, to say the least. And so they start to try to hunt down the author. And rumor has it the author is Marlowe himself. And that's because this placard was written in blank verse and it was signed Tamburlaine. What a clue. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> it it seems like maybe this well-known troublemaker might have something to do with this. So the authorities go to Marlowe's place. They learn he's been living with another dramatist named Thomas Kidd. Yep, and they search his place. And there's no Marlowe there, but there are plenty of heretical papers around. So they question his roommate, Kidd. And they torture him. And they torture him, yes. And under under duress, Kidd says, it is all Marlowe's stuff. Yeah, so then Marlowe is summoned before the Privy Council, and they let him go, but they tell him, Report back to us every single day until you get further orders. So at this point, anything could happen. Yeah, he's definitely in trouble. It's a serious situation, but he is let go out into the world. But then only a couple weeks later, he's dead. All right. So this is where we get down to the mystery the old story has Marlowe dying in a drunken brawl at a tavern, which sounds like a completely plausible story. Crazy Marlowe getting drunk, getting into a fight. Rowdy with the boys. Getting in over his head. And this is what people thought for years and years. And that ended, or the, the story changed dramatically in 1925. Yes, like 1925, so yeah, long so after the fact. Recently. And uh, that's when historian John Leslie Hodson uncovered the coroner's report in London's public records office. He was looking for something else entirely, but found this very crucial document and published it in his 1925 book. And suddenly this drunken brawl or, you know, the story of the drunken brawl featured three very unsavory characters from the London underworld who all had ties to the spy network. What a coincidence. And there's another coincidence, too. Yes. The tavern also turned out to be a lodging house that had connections to the network as well. Yeah, kind of a safe house of sorts. Right. So here's what supposedly happened, according to this theory. May 30th, 1593, Marlowe goes to Deptford outside of London and goes to the widow Eleanor Bowles lodging house, which is this house that we just mentioned with connections, connections to the network. There he meets Ingram Freezer, who is a blackmailer and also in the employ of his old boss, Walshingham. He also meets Nicholas Skears, who's a thug working with Freezer. And Robin Poley, who is likely a deep cover agent provocateur. He's operated out of Brussels, Antwerp, and Flushing, where Marlowe also was. And at the time, he was 
working on the Queen's business in London, but still somehow able to take the day off to hang out with Marlowe and his pals. And that's exactly what they do. They apparently spend the day eating, smoking, walking around the courtyard, just kind of hanging out. It all seems like it's going fine. And then after dinner, an argument breaks out, supposedly over an unpaid bill. Uh, we have the coroner report by William Danby, and I just have to say, I had to cut this in a weird place because the coroner's report is essentially <laughs> a run-on sentence that goes on for probably about three or four hundred words. But With lots of ands. <laughs> yeah, it just and, and, and. Um, I'm going to just read a part of it. Christopher Morley, on a sudden and of his malice towards the said Ingram aforethought, then and there maliciously drew the dagger of the said Ingram, which was at his back. And with the same dagger, the said Christopher Morley, then and there maliciously gave the aforesaid Ingram two wounds on his head of the length of two inches and of the depth of a quarter of an inch. Okay, so it sounds like Marlowe has grabbed the knife of Ingram Freezer and tried to attack him with it. At this point, Freezer wrestles with Marlowe and somehow regained his weapon and then stabbed Marlowe over his right eye. And this wound is described as being two inches deep, one inch wide, and killing Marlowe instantly. So that's kind of a different story from the drunken brawl. And the other men corroborate the story. There's an inquest, and the inquest concludes um, with you know, this coroner's report. And then one month later, the queen pardons Freezer, uh, saying, well, it's self-defense. Self-defense. Sounds like kind of Marlowe's story way back. but Yeah, this seems to be a typical defense for these guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. Get away with murder, perhaps. But, um, yeah, it definitely changes the entire perception of Marla's death when you consider the company he was with and the place he was and what had just recently happened to him, which was getting into some serious trouble. Yep, it raises a lot of questions. But <laughs> it doesn't end there. I mean, that that raises plenty of questions just as is if we accept the coroner's report at face value. Um the fight over the bills starts to look a lot more like an assassination. Especially since it follows so soon after the arrest. Yeah, exactly. But some people don't think that Marlowe died in 1593 at all. And this is especially coming from the International Marlowe Shakespeare Society. They think the inquest was entirely faked. And as you said, it was the other three men who were at the inquest. So... Yeah, I guess the theory could be plausible. Yeah, so they're they're saying that the only men who could have identified Marlowe at his inquest, where his body was present, were these three sketchy characters. Uh, yeah, essentially they think that Marlowe was in really deep trouble after this arrest, and he was worried, and none of his high-ranked protectors like Walshingham or William Cecil, Lord Burley, who... We've mentioned in an earlier podcast, none of them could do anything for him themselves. But maybe these other guys but, could do something. Yeah, maybe their kind of low-life employees could do something for him, like fake his death. For instance, except, uh-oh, there would have to be a body. Yeah, that's what disturbs me maybe the most about this theory. Who is the body with the stab wound to the eye? 
Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll just end that there. But the Marlowe Shakespeare people take this theory a step further. They suggest that Marlowe actually lived on as Shakespeare and like writing all of his, all works. his works. So make of that what you will. Um, I think a lot of English departments would have to be sandblasted if that were the case. Definitely. <laughs> and, but the didn't die theory, such as it is, is interesting enough on its own. Um, yeah, without the whole Marlowe lives on a Shakespeare edition. Right. And Marlowe's much belated window in Westminster Abbey's Poets' Corner has a question mark by the date of death. Yeah, so I guess we're going to close out this episode with Marla's own motto. It's always nice to close in the words of a writer. His motto was, what nourishes me destroys me. And it certainly fits the man. It apparently also fits Angelina Jolie. And I hope I didn't infect my computer by searching Angelina Jolie tattoo. But uh, she has a Latin translation of this quote. So there you go. And I think that talk of tattoos brings us to Listener Mail. This edition of Listener Mail is Real Mail, and it is from Sarah, who is a history teacher living in the Netherlands. And I picked this specifically because Marlo... She has your name. Well, yeah, she has my <laughs> name. Um, well, Marlo operated out of Flushing, and hopefully Sarah is having a better time in the Netherlands than... Marlowe did. <laughs> but she wrote to us, I love your podcast and have listened to them all since I discovered them. I hate having to wait for them now. The town I live in is Leiden. It is home to Leiden University, established by William I of Orange in 1575, oldest Netherlands University, the birthplace of Rembrandt and the home of the pilgrims before they sailed to the New World, which I think that is something we mentioned in the first Thanksgiving episode. I'm just like plugging every old episode today. I can't help it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think some Netherlands history would be fun. And uh, especially since Sarah said you'd make my day if you read my letter during listener mail. She sent us pictures of tulips, which definitely encouraged my resolution to read it as part of listener mail. They're very bright and colorful. Yes. Perfect for brightening up a desk in the winter. Um, but for anyways, sure. if, if you have any comments or requests or, I don't know, favorite Marlowe theories you want to send our way, you can find us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And... And if you want to find out more about spies, you can visit our homepage and type in spies at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. iTunes.